0: You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast presented by Sapphire Legal. Workplace Perspective is a regular podcast series for employers and employees focusing on education, training, and the law to help organizations of all sizes develop and maintain successful workplace relationships. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective do not necessarily reflect those of Sapphire Legal or its attorneys and should not be considered legal advice. And now, here's your host, founder and principal attorney at Sapphire Legal, Teresa McQueen.
1: Thank you, James, and welcome everyone to Workplace Perspective, where we are striving to raise the bar at workplaces everywhere. Today, we're sharing with you a replay of a terrific interview from one of our earliest shows. In October of 2017, California enacted AB 1008, California's latest ban-the-box legislation. One month later, Orange County criminal defense attorney Alan Carvaro and I sat down to talk about analyzing criminal conviction histories from both the criminal law and employment law perspectives. This was an incredibly well-received show, and we're really excited to share it with you once again. So stay with us as we focus on how the statute impacts not only employers looking to fill vacant positions, but applicants who may have troubled background histories. It's going to be a great show. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
2: Alan and I are going to be talking about the newly signed Assembly Bill 1008, which is California's latest ban-the-box legislation aimed at Preventing Discrimination in Employment Based on an Applicant's Criminal Conviction History. Before we get started talking about the new statute, Alan, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your legal background and your current law practice?
3: Sure, my pleasure. I had the privilege of serving 28 years in the Orange County Public Defender's Office as a senior deputy public defender. During that time, I had many misdemeanor and serious felony trials. I also had a good deal of appellate practice, which allowed me to argue before our California 4th District Court of Appeal and our California Supreme Court. Presently, I'm in private practice locally in Newport and still represent individuals accused of crimes. In the last few years, as we've had changes in our legislation, I have represented people who have suffered convictions but also now seek dismissal of the same from their records. I also have gained a lot of experience in this area while serving on the Administration of Justice Committee for our Orange County Bar. There, we have the opportunity to review many of the Judicial Council forms that are used for sealing records and dismissals prior to the release to the public by the Council.
2: Well, clearly, Alan, you are the perfect guest to talk with us about this new legislation. To start with, Alan and I are going to give everyone a bit of an overview of the statute, beginning with some background history on California's ban-the-box legislation. We'll then take the opportunity to ask Alan to give us the benefit of his criminal law experience as we discuss some of the more specific aspects of this new law. I'm going to start with some of the background. Originally passed in 2013, California's first ban-the-box legislation, which was AB 218, applied to state agencies city and county governments, as well as charter cities and counties and special districts within California. In 2015, federal agencies were also directed to ban the box with prohibitions against asking applicants about convictions on initial job applications. Now, since about 2013, over 29 states and 150 plus cities across the nation have adopted these ban the box laws. Nine states and 15 cities across the U.S. apply ban the box laws to both private and public sector employers. According to statistics provided by the state, nearly one in three adults in California have an arrest or conviction record sufficient to impair their ability to secure employment. Experts have also found that securing employment post-conviction reduces recidivism. Research also shows that individuals with conviction records who secure employment tend to have lower rates of turnover and higher job promotion rates. I thought that was a great statistic. And personal contact with potential employers has proven to reduce the negative stigma of convictions by approximately 15%. This new statute amends Section 12952 of the Government Code and repeals Section 432.9 of the California Labor Code and takes effect January 1st of 2018. Let's take the time now to focus on the specifics of the statute and how it impacts not only employers looking to fill vacant positions, but applicants who may have troubled background histories. Alan, to start us off with, why don't you let everyone know under what circumstances the statute does not apply?
3: Sure. The statute states that it is an unlawful employment practice for an employer with five or more employees to do certain acts. So we know clearly by the statute, if you're an employer and you have five or more employees, this is going to apply to you. We go on, and it also does not apply to these special circumstances. Number one, if the employee has a position which he's filing for with the state or local agency that is required by law to conduct a conviction history background check, then it's not going to apply. For instance, as an example, when I was a deputy public defender, this particular section, because I was a county employee, it would have applied to me. But for private employers, it does not apply right now. Another exception is a position with a criminal justice agency, as defined by the penal code. That would be someone such as a police officer, a fireman, or perhaps even a deputy sheriff. Another position that it would not apply to would be the farm labor contractor, as defined by the labor code. And we also have positions where an employer or an agent is required by any state, federal, or local law to conduct criminal background checks for employment purposes or to restrict employment based on criminal history. Clearly, that would be an example that if you're going to apply for the FBI as a federal employee, it would apply. Those are the four exceptions. And again, the fewer an employer with five or more employees, this applies to you.
2: The statute really makes some significant changes to the employee selection process. The statute itself makes it an unlawful employment practice to ask questions on an employment application that would disclose an applicant's criminal conviction history. This is a big change. Or to inquire about or consider an applicant's criminal conviction history, including asking for that history on an application. And they make all that prohibited until after a conditional offer of employment has been made.
3: That's right. It really makes an unlawful employment practice to do several of the following One, it would be to consider, distribute, or disseminate information while conducting a criminal history background check with these following items. Things that you may not do are an arrest which was not followed by a conviction, except in very limited circumstances as set forth by Section 432.7 of the Labor Code. Those specifically are... Number one, if it's an employer at a health facility, you may ask the prospective uh, applicant about conviction or arrest with regard to the health and safety code. Those are specifically drug-related arrests and convictions. They also ask certain uh, applicants with regard to their arrest record if they have ever been arrested of Section 290 of the Penal Code. Section 290 of the Penal Code is a laundry list, if you will. Uh, particular criminal violations, both misdemeanor and felony, that have to do with sexual offenses. Another large category that is accepted that you may not ask about are any referrals or participation in pre-trial or post-trial diversion programs. In California, for many years, the classic example is someone is arrested for a possession of a narcotic offense. It could be cocaine. It could be an opiate. It could be even something like methamphetamine. In that particular situation, an individual can go to court if their record under certain circumstances is clean. The court will offer to them that if they wish to plead guilty, they may be placed on a probation and they may go receive counseling. Uh, Upon the completion of counseling and testing, at that point, if they have done what the court has asked, they will be considered diverted and the court will withdraw the plea of guilty, and it will be taken off the record. So in those particular cases, which we see quite a few of, you may not ask about those type of diversion programs. The final category is convictions that have been sealed, dismissed, expunged, or statutorily eradicated. That's not really something all that new, because those were also on the not-to-ask list under the labor code in the first place. So couple of exceptions, however, we do have is there is no prohibition on interfering or restraining or, or denying the rights if it turns out that you're conducting background checks with other California governing criminal background checks. In other words, there are a few exceptions that are beyond what we'll be talking about, which you may conduct those in. So in that particular case, there is no exception in that. One thing, however, that could come up is that this particular section also does not apply to someone who is on bail pending, in other words, a criminal charge is is filed, the individual goes to court, they have what's called an arraignment, the first appearance in which they may enter a plea of not guilty, and they may seek a trial or other type of things for the court. The court may place them on bail or their own recognizance, meaning they have to return and they can't violate the law. An employer is not forbidden under this statute to ask about those situations.
2: And I think that's really significant and a great point. The statute also introduces a few additional steps that an employer must take if it intends to deny an applicant a position solely or in part because of the applicant's criminal conviction history. Now, the statute says specifically that an employer, quote, must make an individualized assessment of whether the applicant's conviction history has a direct an adverse relationship with the specific duties of the job that justified denying the applicant the position, unquote. That is tremendously significant. And probably has most everybody wondering, how the heck do you do that? And, no doubt anticipating that response, the statute provides some help.
3: Yes, there are really three specific areas that the statute specifically provides for. And really, when we go through them, you'll see, I think, that they are really common sense. The legislature is trying to find a balance for an employer so that the employer does not get an employee whose conduct in the future, if hired, will be detrimental to the employer. That is balanced out with the fact that many people in California have committed offenses, and that's not to justify the violation of the penal code or health and safety. But when they are younger or other parts of life, they've committed an offense, they have done what the court has asked time has passed, and here the employer has an opportunity to really get a great employee. So the three items that really an employer needs to look at are going to be the nature and gravity of the offense or conduct. Two, the time that has passed since the offense or conduct and the completion of that sentence. And three, the nature of the job held or sought. So you can see that in many cases, as an employer is looking at as we call it, the criminal rap sheet, that is the conviction history, and they see that an individual was uh, has violated the law and has a conviction, say something like a grand theft, Penal Code Section 487, you merely see the Penal Code number. That does not tell you a thing about the underlying facts of the crime or what has happened since that. And this is what the legislature is telling you to take a look
2: at. All right. Then, According to the statute, once the employers conducted this individualized assessment using these factors, and they've made the preliminary decision that the criminal conviction history disqualifies the applicant, they have to notify the applicant of their preliminary decision in writing. Now, there are things that this notice has to include. First, it has to include notice of the disqualifying conviction or convictions that are the basis for the preliminary decision to rescind the offer. The employer can, but is not required to, justify or explain their reasoning for making the preliminary denial or disqualification. It also needs to include a copy of the conviction history report, if the employer has one. It has to include an explanation of the applicant's right to respond to the notice of the employer's preliminary decision before that decision becomes final. And then it has to include a deadline by which to respond. The notice also has to include a notification to the applicant that the applicant can include submission of evidence challenging the accuracy of the conviction history that is the basis for rescinding the offer. There's a time element associated with the notice, and Alan's going to explain how that works.
3: Yes, applicants have five business days to respond upon receiving this notice. If they notify the employer within this five-day period that they wish to dispute the accuracy of the criminal conviction report, they receive an additional five business days to respond to provide contrary evidence. Now, that's important, and I'll give you an example of something recently that happened with a client of mine. He was applying for an internet cloud service. As a programmer, they used an out-of-state supplier to run the criminal convictions. We all know that we've seen many of those that are advertised on the internet. And it popped up that he had a conviction in a federal court in Chicago six years ago. Well, the client, of course, was very disturbed because he'd never been to Chicago, much less had a conviction in federal court. So by having this additional time, we were able to get the true rap sheet from California and clear up and show that although the individual had the same, the individual reportedly having that conviction in Chicago in federal court may have had the same first, last, and middle name, he clearly had a different date of birth, and that was not my client. As a result, you can see that the employer, by having this opportunity and getting the time, we were able to give that contrary evidence to the employer, which resulted in my client, the employee, gaining the employment. So finally, if the applicant submits evidence to dispute the conviction his report, as we did in this case, the employer is required to consider the evidence before making any final decisions.
2: And then the next thing that you have to do for an employer's perspective according to the statute is after you hear nothing from the applicant after having given them this preliminary notice or after you've received additional information disputing the conviction report, then the employer can make its final decision. If at this stage the final decision is to deny the applicant the position, the employer has a second notification requirement. The second notification requirement makes it mandatory that the employer give the applicant notice of its final decision again in writing. This notice has to include the final decision or disqualification which the employer may but is not required to justify or explain the reason behind making the final decision or the disqualification. You have to provide any existing procedure that you as an employer may have for the applicant to challenge the decision or request a reconsideration. The final thing you have to notify the applicant of is their right to file a complaint with the Department of Fair Employment and Housing. That is the
1: statute in a nutshell. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, more thoughts from Alan on Ban the Box compliance and some unique takeaways for employers, employees, and applicants. Stay with us. We'll be right back. <music>
0: The average time a resume spends on an HR manager's desk is seven seconds. And most of them are tossed aside. Now imagine if one of those resumes belonged to Yasmeen, who was
2: Living in a shelter, juggling three jobs. I had to be resilient. That's something that you can't teach.
0: Or if that resume was from someone who
2: Worked 12-hour shifts at the recycling company with my dad, who's 72. That taught me a work ethic that I carry with me every day.
0: We rely so much on a resume, yet it could never tell the full story of someone.
2: Growing up where I did, a lot of things could have gotten in the way of my goals, but I learned to push through, and that's what I bring to work every day.
0: So maybe it's time we look beyond the resume and look to Grads of Life. Discover new ways to develop great talent that are so much more than what's on paper at gradsoflife.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Grads of Life and the Ad Council. OC Talk Radio, streaming, not screaming.
1: We hope you're enjoying this special replay of our Ban the Box interview with attorney Alan Carvaro. To hear more of these interviews, including our latest, please visit our website at sapphirelegal.com slash podcast. And now, back to Alan. Alan
2: In looking more specifically at the statute, there are a lot of things that jump out at me as really concerning, both from an applicant perspective and the employee perspective. But let's start with this requirement to make an individualized assessment that we talked about. Where does an employer even start? Given the factors, I get why they put the factors in there. It makes perfect sense. But even having those factors in there, where does the employer start? But
3: let's start with the definition to help everyone out. Exactly what are we talking about, what a conviction is, and this notion of conviction history. We recall earlier we discussed all of the things that you cannot ask about. The arrests that didn't result in convictions, the diversions, the convictions that have been dismissed, all of those are off the list. What is on the list is a conviction, and a conviction is, The definition is not something new for employers in the sense that this new legislation uses the same definition as we find in the earlier labor code still on the books, and that is the conviction includes a plea, verdict, or finding guilty, and it doesn't matter whether the sentence has been imposed by the court. Again, you can ask about arrest for which the employee is out on bail or his own recognizance pending the trial. And another thing to recall is that in California, if someone has had a sustained petition as a juvenile by the juvenile court, meaning that they were 18 years or under, that is not considered a conviction. So if they have something that accidentally shows up on the record, which it shouldn't, but sometimes does, by the juvenile court, meaning they were 18 years or younger, that is not a conviction. So what you're going to find is, that, again, looking at the nature and gravity, the time that has passed, the nature of the job. As I said before, a lot of times, the things that the employer will be provided with is a conviction, but it will simply say a penal code number, and it will not tell the employer a thing about the fact. So let's run through a real easy example and see how simply knowing the number is not enough to solve this problem that has been put forth. That is, How serious was this, and does it really relate to the job? An example, let's say, for instance, a banking institution is seeking tellers. Obviously, you would certainly find it relevant to know that a candidate for employment had been convicted of felonious grand theft of money five years earlier when they were employed as a cashier for a retail outlet. Now, in the last few years, California defines basically grand theft Uh, That is, the taking of goods or money or services in the amount of $950 or more. Anything under $950 is now considered a petty theft, and that has been raised in the last three or four years. So, in contrast, consider the same prospective employer that they've learned that the candidate had been convicted for felonious grand theft, only to find out that the conviction was based on the fact that the candidate and two other girlfriends went shoplifting for a couple of pairs of expensive jeans and cosmetics from the local uh, shopping mall when they were 18 years old. You could see that that could make a great difference in how one would look at that prospective
2: applicant. I think that's important for people to understand that those limits have changed over the years and each subsequent change in the law, what used to be an offense is all of a sudden not an offense anymore or what it was before isn't as serious as it is now. And I think that's really challenging for employers.
3: That's particularly true with narcotic offenses. California, in the last couple of years, things that had been felonies for, let's say, almost 100 years in our state, suddenly have become misdemeanors. So the legislature does not view simple possession of methamphetamine, heroin, opiates, particularly marijuana as serious offenses in the same way that they used to just a couple of years ago. There are many ways in which individuals can go and take that off their record that we'll discuss in just a moment.
2: I know you and I spoke about this in preparing for today's talk. There's the California Code of Regulations, and I forget the section number, but it states that the time that's passed is really important because if you're trying to use a conviction, I believe it's seven years or older.
3: That is correct.
2: Yeah, if you're using a conviction that's seven years or older, there's this presumption that that's not good enough. So as an employer, you want to keep that in mind. They're trying to save exactly what you've been talking about, that if it's too old, things have likely changed, and that conviction probably doesn't mean now what it meant then.
3: That's correct. That's really 2 Cal Code Regulation Section 11017, and that provides for seven years. I can tell you from experience with period court judges that traditionally we've used anywhere from seven, but usually 10 years as a washout period is what it's called. So an individual picked up a grand theft. Uh, They've been off probation now for seven to 10 years. They led a lawful life. It was their only offense. The court is more likely to withdraw that plea and seal that record. And that's what we call that washout period. And the reason is is there's a lot of research pointing that, uh, unfortunately, young people, 18 through 25, their brains are still developing. They are not able to foresee the serious consequences that violations of the law could happen. Everybody knows when they're in college or high school age, we've all done things that we look in the past and say, my God, what was, what was I thinking? The legislature is now taking that into account and saying, look, these people, they did something foolish when they were young. They really didn't think through. It was nonviolent. Let us give them a second chance. Ten years has passed. They're now adult. And let's really take a look now that they've grown up, how they're contributing to the community. We should not forbade them for the rest of their life to becoming a valuable member of our working community. And that's really the logic behind it.
2: I agree. And in anticipation of the bill being signed, I had been advising some of my employer clients to start looking now at all of their job descriptions and to start making some of these initial assessments about the types of convictions that would likely disqualify an applicant. Like you've just discussed, so depending on the circumstances, someone with, let's say, a fraud conviction would likely be disqualified from holding the position of bank teller, depending, again, on the circumstances. But I think at least thinking ahead and sort of conducting this type of assessment is going to go a long way in helping an employer to sort of short-circuit any claims of discriminatory hiring practices because there are some things that you have to determine on the spot at the time. But if you've already been thinking about it and you've looked at the serious things that would prevent someone, the absolute obvious things, then you're really going a long way towards not making impulse decision. You've already thought it through, which is really what the statute's about, is an employer being able to show that they have thought about it. They've looked into it. They've considered the job versus the conviction. How is this realistically going to impact it? And that's really all the statute is wanting them to do. So one of the things I find concerning about the statute is the time frame for the applicant to respond. Now, I can't imagine that there's much an applicant can do in essentially 10 days' time to fix anything. They have initially five days to respond if they want to challenge the preliminary decision not to give them the job. And then once they notify the employer that, they get an additional five days. So overall, we're looking at 10 days. What can somebody do in that? Anything realistic?
3: Uh, That really is kind of short, and unless the client really has paperwork or information that they have kept over the years, there really isn't a lot to do. For instance, the time frame is really too short for an applicant to seek a judicial remedy such as the dismissal. Example, due to the backlog that's been created, it can take up to six to eight weeks or longer in many counties for an individual to petition and for the court to order dismissal of a conviction. It could be something as simple as a petty theft, a drug conviction. It's kind of automatic, but it, it's a backlog thing. It, it can take up to six to eight weeks. It will take you in a few weeks longer because the court will immediately notify the California Department of Justice, and they will change that rap sheet, that criminal history, and it will take a little bit longer for that to be effectuated, and that's exactly what the employer is usually looking at. A thing to remember also is that wherever the conviction was sustained, that is the county in which the crime occurred and the defendant was sentenced, that's the county in which an applicant has to seek judicial relief. So that can add additional time to what's going to happen, because sometimes it's done by mail or trying to find counsel. So there's a lot of difficult things that come. That 10 days, that's the minimum. I see nothing in the law that if an employer was really interested in an applicant that they can't grant them longer. Ten days is the minimum by law that has to be done to fulfill the requirement, and that's really too short for people to do things.
2: That's a really good point, that this is a minimum statutory requirement, and you're right, there's absolutely nothing that says that they can't do it.
3: And one last point on that. My best advice to any applicant who may be prospective employee who's listening to us today is it's never too soon to seek relief In other words, even before you're considering looking for a job, contact an attorney or get that petition in and seek judicial relief. If you're entitled to it because you know it's going to take a couple of months to do it, start now before you apply. I've had situations where employers are more than willing finding out that the employee has already taken time to file a petition in court They will grant them that extra time to see if the court dismisses it, meaning that if a court dismisses it, that they can't consider it in their criminal history, and as far as the employer is concerned, the individual has a clean criminal history. So, start now. Don't wait.
2: That's absolutely great advice, especially if you know there might be something there. Now... If the applicant does provide an employer with evidence, either documentation or an explanation, to dispute something in the conviction history, are there any red flags from your experience that an employer should be looking for? Yes. Many times we will
3: find that the candidate really doesn't have accurate documentation to provide to the employer. It's not that common that the client will have police reports which would certainly clear up the matter that the employer could read to see how serious or non-serious the matter might have been. Uh, guilty plea forms, on the other hand, do contain statements of the offense, but I found a lot of times clients don't have that. In our age of computers, now many times can get that information directly from the court, particularly the guilty plea form, the type of sentence. Another thing that I've been asked by my clients to do, that if they will waive the attorney-client privilege, I'm happy to provide a letter to the employer or the attorney who handled the matter usually has the appropriate documentation to provide to the employer. So the employer, there's nothing to to say once we get to the appropriate time frame that, you know, Mr. Employer, you may speak to my attorney or my attorney's happy to provide you with anything that you need to clear this matter up. And usually I found that the employers are very grateful for that kind of information. It saves them time, it saves them money, and it puts them in a position where they can really evaluate the things that are required by the statute.
2: And when we spoke earlier, you had also mentioned that you were getting a number of your clients calling you to say, hey, I've put in an application for this job, there's a problem with my criminal conviction history, and the employer's willing to wait for me.
3: And that's been the trend, that... They see employees that they really, really want, and but for the fact that they have this one thing on their criminal history, they would instantly hire them. So they're willing to wait to see if things can be cleared up in court, and 99 out of 100 times, it's successful.
2: I'm so happy to hear that. I think it's just a terrific trend, and I'm hoping that the statute really does have the long-term effect that the legislation intends. Now, before we wrap things up for today, what are some other takeaways from today's program that you think people should be aware of?
3: I think, number one, from the prospective employee's point of view, if you have a criminal conviction on your record right now, check with an attorney or the local public defender in the county in which you sustain that conviction. You may be eligible to take advantage of judicial relief, such as a dismissal, uh, perhaps the sealing of record. And you should do so immediately. Don't wait to see employment. Do it immediately. From the employer's point of view, if the conviction history is the only thing standing in the way of hiring a candidate, really take a close and long look at those factors, those three factors that are listed by the statute. Again, the nature and gravity. It's one thing to go in and steal a carton of cigarettes from the target. And in those days, it might have been, on your record, showed that you had a commercial burglary. It's quite another situation that someone goes into the very same store and clean them out for hundreds of thousands of dollars of merchandise. How long is the time that's passed between that again? People change over time. They become more serious. They get married. They have children, responsibilities, and things. Let's call them sins of our youth. We grow up and we change, and that's something really to take into a look that if you've gone 10 or more years and you haven't had those same problems, more likely than not, this was an aberration in your life. And then again, the nature of the job. If you're going to be someone who is not handling money and you're going to be driving a truck, the question is, does it really matter if, at the time, you stole a candy bar when you were 19 years old, or that pack of cigarettes, is that really something that's related to your skills to drive cross-country, uh, to do other type of jobs, to be work in construction? Probably not. So the relationship of the underlying facts which support a conviction, and the nature of the position you seek to hire someone is extremely important. As I say, many times you'll find by going behind that penal code or health and safety code number or business and professions code number, there really is no logical relationship. So I'm not condoning behavior or violation of any laws of California, but the best way is to really take a look at those underlying facts. Those are my uh, takeaways.
2: Well, Alan, I really love your perspective on all this. And I so appreciate you coming on. I want to thank you for being on today's podcast, sharing your expertise and your experience with our listeners. You really gave some terrific insights and some very helpful information.
3: Well, thank you. It's been my privilege, and I certainly hope how that helps all of our listeners out there.
2: Thank you so much, Alan.
1: We hope you've enjoyed our special replay, and thank you again to Alan Carvaro. If you'd like to learn more about Alan Carvaro and his law practice, please visit our website at slash podcast and click on either of our Ban the Box episodes. I want to also thank our listeners for joining us, My Radio Angels, James and the Nave at Night, and Workplace Perspectives Team Extraordinaire, our engineer and producer, Paul Roberts, with music provided by the very talented Stephen Versaloni. Until next time, keep raising the bar.